realtor. We're seeing uh, similar trends in terms of that emphasis on C4SR, which uh, has been characterized as a transition from informatization to intelligentization. And I think right. these questions of command and control will be fascinating to observe as technologies evolve going forward. I'm sometime, sometimes asked whether I think or under what conditions the Chinese or Russian military might take humans out of the loop. And my half-serious response would be I can say with complete confidence there will always be at least one human in the loop in China, and that's yes. Xi Jinping. <laughs> right, I imagine right. uh, in Russia that Putin will always be in the loop one way or another. But I do think that there could be interesting ways in which Chinese and Russian military and strategic cultures will result well, there, there, in there, there, different our, patterns our, our of, of adoption. There's advantage because I guarantee Trump will not be in the loop. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the, the emphasis now for the Chinese and the Russians is the move from information-based warfare to knowledge-based warfare. And that's where all these new technologies come in, so that the technology can learn along with the humans and adapt. And I think everybody's racing towards that status, uh, and the surprise will be whoever gets there first. Welcome to episode 255 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, as usual, uh, any resemblance between the views expressed here and those of our friends, spouses, clients, uh, in, and institutions is purely coincidental. Uh, uh, and uh, I should say, uh, I'm I particularly will plead. Uh, exhaustion, because I am just back from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, uh, and uh, you know, getting down was harder than getting up, but both of them were really surprisingly painful. So uh, we've got uh, a great interview, uh, uh, two experts on Chinese and uh, uh, um, Russian use of technology for the military, Elsa Kanya, who's been on before, uh, adjunct senior fellow at the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American S Security. Elsa, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be back on the show. It's great to have you. And uh, uh, a newbie, uh, Sam Bendit, uh, who's a research an analyst with the Center for Naval Analysis uh, International Affairs Group. Sam, welcome. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, and uh, joining me for the news roundup, uh, we've got David, Chris, and Nate Jones, both of Culper Partners, both formerly with the uh, uh, Justice Department in the National Security Division. Uh, uh, David, Nate, you're in the same room, too. Uh, uh, great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, by popular demand, uh, more Weaver. I've been asked to get, provide more Weaver, and we have more Nick Weaver, uh, uh, who is uh, uh, all things computer at the UC Berkeley. Uh, Nick, great to have you. Thank you. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, so why don't we jump right in? Let's talk a little law. Uh, and uh, uh, the Fourth Circuit has made some law. And uh, next to having Oren Kerr himself on, uh, uh, I think David is uh, the best uh, person to explain what the Fourth Circuit did, because I'm pretty sure it's just wrong. Well, Stuart, it's a complex case, both factually and legally, so I'll try to summarize it without distorting too much and do it all in under four minutes. Factually, this case is a bit of a soap opera with two couples locked in various combination of romantic entanglement. The, the main thing to know factually is that the plaintiff had an email account at his college that was hosted by Google and that the defendant used the plaintiff's password to log into the account 
and read the plaintiff's emails without permission. So the defendant and, 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 and former spouse uh, now locked in uh, uh, some marital type relationship with the former spouse of the other uh, uh, the cheating spouse who has um, aligned with the defendant. So it's a yes. it's, it, it's complicated, but uh, basically not a surprising scenario uh, uh, either that the that the two jilted um, spouses ended up together or that one of them decided to uh, use the login credentials of the person who jilted her. Uh, exactly. And, and the, so this is a lawsuit has nothing to do with law enforcement um, on its face, nothing to do really well, with Google, uh, right? Nothing to do with it in the sense that it's a civil lawsuit between two private citizens, one of whom is complaining that the other one hacked into his emails. And it's, it is definitely a, a case with a life lesson for our listeners, which is if you give your girlfriend your email password, do be sure to change it after you break up, especially if at that same time you also happen to be sleeping with her new boyfriend's wife. Um, yes. But it does have implications for law enforcement because the civil cause of action under the Federal Stored Communications Act is derivative of a crime and has implications, and this is where Oren Kerr comes in, for how the government would get access to stored emails if it were using a warrant. I would go a little um, bit further than that. I, I think that uh, the, the, all the amicus parties who participated in this couldn't care less about the, uh, the, the two couples involved or yep. even the civil action. This is a, an effort aimed squarely at law enforcement designed to undo the standard interpretation of when you need a warrant and when you don't to get a, uh, to get access to certain kinds of email. Yeah, I think that the interest in the case is probably generated by that rather than the, uh, the personal romantic aspects of it. So it, it is a bit of a mess legally, um, but, you know, it is a private lawsuit based on intentionally accessing without authorization an electronic communication service facility in order to obtain access to email while it is in electronic storage. And as we've established, there was clearly access and it was clearly unauthorized. And so the real legal issue here technically is were these email messages in electronic storage? And to skip over a little complexity, the Court of Appeals concluded that they were in electronic storage because they were being maintained by an electronic communication service provider, that's the college, and behind the scenes it's Google, for purposes of backup protection. And that turns out to be a very controversial conclusion, one with which Orrin Kerr and some courts have disagreed. On the other hand, some courts have agreed with it. Um, but it makes a difference, given that the plaintiff here had already opened and read the emails that the defendant later accessed using his password. Um, and that causes some courts to treat these emails as something being stored by a remote computing service, an RCS, rather than an electronic communication service, an ECS. And that, in turn, makes a big difference. Some people, like Oren, think, and I think this is the prevailing view, that for any given email, you are either an ECS or an RCS, but not both simultaneously. And so as a result of that, the government knows which set of rules to follow if they want to get your emails for criminal law enforcement purposes. What this court says is, 
No, it could be both ECS and RCS. And in the event that both rules apply, the government has to satisfy the more stringent set of rules. Um, and there's a long and painful legal discussion about how they, they get to that. But that's the gist of it. And that would be a big change from the conventional view. The, the nauseating detail aside, at least in my opinion, the, the main and overwhelming conclusion to be drawn here is that, you know, after 33 years, our statutory rules and laws governing access to email are very badly in need of an update. Um, they just don't really capture all of the nuances of today's various Internet offerings. So let me and let me, let me let nice me, to fix that. Let me let me contest that briefly. I, I think what the drafters of this were trying to do in 1986 is is not hard to divine unless you're determined not to divine it. Uh, um, they said we have laws on intercept wiretaps, which are very stringent. Uh, and if you're delivering email kind of direct to somebody, the fact that it sent, spends a little time on your system, uh, it shouldn't matter in terms of uh, whether the wiretap laws apply. So we're going to apply the wiretap laws to those emails in transit, even if they're taking a, a, a break and having a cup of coffee uh, on your server. That's all subject to one set of rules. But we have another set of rules where if you hired somebody to store your stuff for you as a remote computing service, we'd treat it as subject to a subpoena um, because third-party rule, uh, uh, Smith against Maryland, et cetera. So we're going to have to draw a line between when you look like somebody who's delivering real-time communications and when you look like somebody who's just storing it for somebody. And if you take that view of the law, it's not at all irrational. It, and what the Fourth Circuit has done here is um, because they – Well, well, I do think, Stuart, they, they did not, as I read the opinion – admittedly somewhat quickly, they did not contest the idea that these were not in backup storage for purposes incidental to transmission. It was the other prong of the definition of storage that um, that they relied on to disagree with the lower court and right. find but, but the, the would, cause of action. I, if I so remember they're not right. as crazy as what you just said might suggest. Well, close. That they don't think it's in storage <laughs> when it's in transit. It, it, it's close because what the what the storage provision for people who are delivering stuff in transit is meant to cover, at least I think as drafted, uh, is storage that the company that's providing the service maintains for its own purposes. So if they still yes. have it, uh, then of course you'd say, well, come on. These are guys who deliver stuff in close to real time. Whether the, the, the fact that they made a backup copy to help them shouldn't change the legal standard. But what the court did is they seized on this backup, ignored the, the, the clear signals that it was meant to be backup of the company and said, hey, it's backup. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I think that was an ideologically driven determination. Yeah, well, that I agree. I, I, I mean, as to whether it's ideological is one thing, but you're absolutely right that what they said was this was not just backed up for the provider, but um, but also for the plaintiff subscriber, and that's what caused them to reach their controversial conclusion. I, I still believe these laws are in need of an update, and the fact that we've just gone round and round on it, um, you know, is evidence of that. But I don't disagree with you also that, you know, there are better and worse interpretations of the existing law, 
and uh, perhaps this one will be subject to further scrutiny. I imagine Oren will unleash a broadside <laughs> of a, yes, a blog post in short order because they do uh, expressly disagree with him in a footnote, and I doubt he will uh, take that line down. No, it's true. And, and I, I do want to shout out, uh, uh, we have uh, a bunch of comment, uh, comments that people, reviews people have written, and a uh, guy named R, or somebody named R. Ammerman uh, says... This is an honest take from true believers in the national security state. Whether you agree or not with the views of the host, you won't find a more insightful analysis of legal issues regarding national security anywhere else. And um, I know the first sentence is true, uh, and I, I hope the second is. Uh, so, R. Ammerman, you, you nailed us. Let me, let me turn to another uh, uh, judicial decision. Uh, all these complaints from the right, um, uh, and some of them persuasive, uh, um, uh, about uh, how Silicon Valley is censoring uh, uh, views on the right, uh, actually produced a lawsuit. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit, uh, sorry, the D.C. Uh, uh, District Court, uh, in uh, a ruling by a very recently appointed Trump appointed uh, judge, uh, has rejected the lawsuit. Uh, Nate, uh, what happened? Yeah, I mean, this case is quite a bit more simple than David's case is factually. Let's just say that <laughs> um, a group of conservative activists, as you said, sued Google, Facebook. Twitter and Apple for suppressing, as they as they called it, uh, politically conservative content. There were four separate claims, two uh, under the Sherman Act, one under a local D.C. statute, and then one under the First Amendment. You know, at a high level, I think the case is a pretty good synopsis of, uh, at least in my opinion, right wing attacks, uh, not just on social media, but on the media more generally. And that is, you know, without any factual support, uh, there are a lot of claims of being victims of media bias and suppression. And that was, I think, one of the biggest flaws in their complaint. Um, but they also had some pretty significant legal flaws. And as you said, this was a recently Trump appointed and confirmed judge. So to the extent people believe there are Trump judges and Obama judges and Bush judges out there, um, this is about as good a, an audience as you would expect uh, this group of folks to have. And, you know, it was at the motion to dismiss stage. And so, uh, not a particularly rigorous standard applied. All the factual accusations are generally interpreted in favor of the plaintiff, and they're just looking to see if there is a uh, plausible claim that's been asserted. And uh, that's pretty much where they failed. Yeah. The, so I, 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 I think they, they, on, on the factual pleadings, the, the judge was a little hard on them, though I can understand why, uh, saying uh, you're, you're alleging this is a conspiracy and restraint of trade, but you haven't shown any evidence of conspiracy. Um, right. And I think that is consistent with kind of the newly toughened uh, uh, motion to dismiss um, uh, rules. Uh, um, but it is – it's a little hard to say it, you've alleged that there's a dark conspiracy uh, uh, and you haven't actually pointed to anything other than uh, what you describe as coordinated behavior. Um, but I think yeah, – you know, they, the, the, they lacked – I think both prongs of that, right? They lack the coordination and they lack the behavior. The, the, you know, I think the factual allegations leveled by the plaintiffs in this case essentially amounted to our usership was growing and then it leveled off. It happened to level off at around the time Trump was elected. Therefore, somebody must have conspired against us to suppress our viewpoints, not maybe we have some limited appeal 
across the country, and we've reached the cap of that. Um, and so they didn't really offer up a lot of factual support. And, and as I said, it's not that they have to go in with, with extensive affidavits or, or internal emails and documents from these providers. They get to make the allegations, and the allegations are interpreted in their favor. And so it's not that I don't think anybody could necessarily survive this stage in a, in a case like this. But whether it's um, you want to call it um, substandard lawyering or what, it's just, you know, they didn't uh, didn't have the goods to put together a very good case. And it's possible somebody could put together a better one. So Um, I actually what I was struck by is the other two claims they make is uh, this is a a public uh, forum, sort of like uh, all those uh, uh, the Prune Yard and other shopping center cases, uh, uh, which aren't really very good law anymore. And uh, um, the the court more or less says, no, it's really got to be state action. Uh, uh, Although they had, you know, there's a, a... an effort to distinguish uh, public TV uh, uh, stations, public access TV, where basically uh, the cable uh, shows allow people to sign up and uh, have shows more or less uh, yeah. uh, on some arbitrary basis um, that have been held to be uh, public forums, uh, and so you could you could argue that uh, the the Section 230 immunity that's conveyed uh, to all of these uh, companies uh, constitutes the sort of um, benefit from the state that ought to justify a state action finding, but they didn't seem to make that claim. The one I I actually want to talk about briefly is because I think this was a narrow escape for uh, uh, Silicon Valley, is the public accommodations discrimination provision of D.C. law which prohibits, as you might expect, discrimination on any conceivable basis, if I remember right, even uh, political viewpoint. Uh, And and what the court says there is, I'm not going to entertain that because the D.C. Court of Appeals has decided that you can't be subject to the public accommodations law unless you have a place that you operate, a public place you operate, not public, a, 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 a place to go that is physical inside physical, the district. Exactly. You know, if, if I were an Alabama legislator, I would be sorely tempted to say, well, we can fix that here in Alabama <laughs> uh, <laughs> because these guys are actually – clearly it's a public accommodation uh, by any standard. Uh, uh, and the court itself, the Supreme Court itself has said you know, uh, cutting off people's internet access is like cutting off their uh, right to speak uh, generally. Um, and so you're not going to have some court say that's wrong. They just got lucky uh, in D.C. that – the court had not gone in that direction. But um, surely in some conservative jurisdictions, we're going to see public accommodation laws that are designed to say, yeah, you know, uh, uh, YouTube, when you cut off uh, Prager University, he can sue here uh, in Texas or Alabama, Mississippi uh, or Wisconsin, for God's sake, because you're engaged in viewpoint discrimination. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the the lawyers in this case did get a little more creative on on the legal side of things in coming up with some creative arguments. There were a couple that they missed by a pretty wide mark, um, including the monopolistic behavior claim um, that multiple companies are um, together form a monopoly of some sort. But I think the two that you just put your finger on, Stuart, um, 
may, you know, may provide uh, a little bit more areas, either legislatively or through litigation for folks to play or to make a little mischief going forward. So speaking of mischief, uh, I want to talk about the UN report that says uh, the North Koreans have stolen $571 million from banks and from uh, a lot of cryptocurrency holders. Uh, David, uh, uh, Nick, uh, is there anything that we could actually, you know, well, let me ask very pointedly. Uh, It seems to me that when you steal cryptocurrency, in many cases, you're stealing something that is trackable to some degree. that is to say, you, we know where the money was, and uh, somebody is going to have to enter something in the blockchain saying that money is now someplace else. Uh, is it possible for the U.S. government to sanction whoever takes tainted money uh, uh, of that kind, or have the uh, the folks who design these systems made it impossible to do that? Well, it's difficult socially, not technically, for most of these cryptocurrencies. So there's this idea that money is supposed to be fungible and tracking the bad cryptocurrency, the stolen cryptocurrency has been proposed for many years now. And it's technically quite reasonable to do, but actually enforcing that notion of tainting the bad coins is very much an attack on the idea of cryptocurrency altogether, that you shouldn't care if your dollar bill was last used in a drug deal, as long as you're not the drug dealer. Sure. I remember the study that, that, that when, when they discovered that uh, you could find it, cocaine on cocaine practically on every uh, $100 bill. Uh, and they went, they went to a bishop, got a $100 bill out of his uh, wallet, and yep, tested positive for cocaine. So yeah, you can see that there's a taint potential that most people don't want to think about when they're spending their $100 bills. And there's worse, too, is that 80 to 90 percent of the volume on the cryptocurrency exchanges are on exchanges that basically are already cut off from the banking system. They're using basically proxy dollars rather than actual money. And so basically a huge fraction of the cryptocurrency market is effectively deliberately flouting U.S. law on a gazillion different fronts, and this would just be one little additional. Okay, so I, you know, look, I, I, I have enormous respect having having represented people uh, on the other side uh, uh, for the immense power that uh, uh, the U.S. government has by uh, exercising control over clearing transactions and clearing bank relationships. Uh, so, uh, and the enormous force of uh, uh, sanctions these days. Uh, the banks just don't want to be anywhere close to somebody who might be sanctioned. So there is more authority there if the U.S. government wanted to use it against North Korea than perhaps has been exercised just as a way of enforcing the drug laws. Except that if the U.S. wanted to enforce that, they'd first basically need to disrupt the unregulated cryptocurrency exchanges. And that means, as I've advocated for over a year now, going after uh, Tether. But they haven't yet. So here, here's here's my suggestion. You should write up your proposal, but as a, as a way of getting at North Korea, because that will bring in a whole bunch of allies that you've never had before. So uh, <laughs> that's my suggestion. Uh, there's a big story about the uh, federal government rolling out facial scanning at 20 airports, uh, and uh, I just wanted to 
flag it because it's being treated as the end of the world, even though uh, anybody who wants to jump the line on the way into the United States, including all Americans, is already doing facial scanning with enthusiasm at the kiosks uh, uh, to make sure that they can get through without having to stand in line as, uh, anywhere near as long. This is an effort. This is like 20 years in the making. There was a recommendation from the 9-11 Commission, uh, believe it or not, that we should keep track of everybody who leaves the country as well as everybody who comes into the country so we know when people who are supposed to leave by a particular date don't do it and we should do it with biometrics. Uh, figuring out a way to do that uh, since we've never had exit controls has turned out to be really hard and really expensive and the mechanism that um, industry is willing to support has turned out to only be facial uh, recognition and a slow implementation of fa facial recognition. But uh, none of that background is really in the story, uh, which is presented as, oh my God, uh, facial recognition, uh, you know, uh, disaster, disaster. Um, uh, it looks to me as though this is going to be rolled out pretty slowly and is mainly aimed at making sure that the uh, passport photos that came into the country from other countries are the photos of the people who leave. All right, uh, Swiss uh, uh, Nick, I've, I've got to ask you about this one. Um, the Swiss had a, an internet voting scheme that people were pretty skeptical of, uh, uh, and uh, I would say the wheels have more or less come off of the entire scheme, haven't they? Well, it's worse. So the problem is, is this is a system that uses sort of the fancy super cryptography that I have trouble explaining to myself, let alone to my parents, in order to ensure that things are trustworthy. But they actually use cryptographic primitives for a very important step that specifically include trapdoor ability so you could build in sabotage into the cryptography, let alone all the sabotage in the rest of the software. This is just exhibit 314572 on why internet voting is an awful idea. Yeah, it, it, it is an awful idea. And uh, the determination to do it is, I, I, I have to say, incomprehensible. To me. Maybe that's unfair. Uh, it would make life a lot easier. You can do everything else online, uh, um, uh, I guess, including have sex. Uh, but uh, to say, well, you can't vote strikes people as odd. But, but the answer is uh, um, uh, everything else you do is subject to a, a, a margin of error that you can't tolerate in elections. And it's especially true since part of the point of the election is to convince the loser that he or she lost, which is really impossible in systems that are designed in such a way that you can't prove anything. All right. Well, uh, Swiss, back to the board, uh, to the uh, drawing board, one hopes. Um, all right. I, th there was a really scathing report about the Navy's cybersecurity written by uh, a Navy advisory group, uh, uh, and it's just come out, uh, um, a, and I'm going to ask uh, uh, Nick and Elsa to, to say, what does it say, and um, how plausible are the uh, recommendations? Well, what it says is defense is vastly harder than offense, especially when you're dealing with uh, espionage, and the Chinese are 
basically as good as on the offense as we are. So uh, uh, welcome to the world where you have an asymmetric defense. So Elsa, what do you think about the recommendations? Uh, are there is, is there something new in there other than that they ought to do what uh, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan do? Yes, I'd say to start that in some respects this news is unsurprising, but it's also deeply troubling the extent to which uh, Chinese hackers have been targeting Navy contractors, including universities engaged in relevant research. Again, to be expected given China's interest in accessing that sort of sensitive data about advanced uh, American weapon systems, but it certainly it does highlight the vulnerability of U.S. military systems, which has been pervasive as a problem, and I think... I haven't looked at the specific recommendations, or I don't know if the full report has been released uh, to date, but I, I'd imagine that, oh, I guess you have it uh, right uh, here. It, so. it, I just, oh. I, I, I have printed it out, but I have not oh, nice. read it because it's 57 pages long. Indeed. Uh, but, I, you know, you've got to give credit to the Secretary of the Navy for having stood this group up and asked for a very quick report and uh, of accepting pretty harsh uh, language about uh, what the Navy's been doing up to now. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I'd highlight that I hope is part of the recommendations is the recommendation is the recognition that academia is deeply vulnerable. And insofar as universities and laboratories often have access to really critical data and intellectual property, but often aren't as security aware as one would hope the military and government would be, though in actuality, I think they aren't always. There's Definitely some room for improvement there. And I think it's also interesting that this, to contextualize this as a pattern of activity that we've seen major upticks in Chinese advanced persistent threat groups, APTs, targeting particularly with regard to China's maritime interests, this particular group, uh, which uh, the company FireEye calls APT40, has been very active on all things related to uh, naval matters, plus the South China Sea and some of this targeting is consistent with the interests of Chinese military intelligence. Uh, some of this would seem to be in violation of the Xi Obama agreement, at least insofar as there's been an uptick in targeting across the board against yeah, but not if it's American military. enterprises. Yeah. And so this is, again, consistent with uh, longstanding patterns. But at the same time, we are uh, seeing evolving threats and uh, potentially increases in Chinese cyber capabilities pursuant to a reorganization of their force structure under the strategic support force, though in the reporting I've seen so far, it's not clear whether this group would be the Chinese military, potentially, or the Ministry of State Security. So clearly very capable threat actors. And uh, hopefully, the I'll look forward to reading the full report, and I hope that the uh, recommendations will be implemented, because I think there's uh, clearly a lot of, lot of room for improvement, given some of the challenges at stake. So is your sense that uh, one reason the Navy has had such... Um, a penetration problem is that uh, it's the Navy that really bothers the Chinese. It's our Navy that, that they're not really worried about our army showing up. Uh, and uh, uh, air superiority has never been their thing. Uh, but all of those um, carriers offshore really uh, bother them and really interfere with their plans for the next 25 years. Well, clearly, uh, naval competition is a uh, major front of the overall military competition. So it doesn't surprise me to see the Navy being targeted to this extent, including places like the Naval Undersea Warfare Center and some of the advanced missiles under development. So uh, I think 
I expect we'll see more like this to come, and I do hope that there is uh, that there'll be some progress in terms of investing in security and defense, and also thinking about uh, related challenges of supply chain and potential vulnerabilities in weapon systems. I think one of the concerns in this case has been the extent to which the data that China's stealing could enable the development of their own advanced capabilities, and I'd point to some interesting... We're going to talk about that right. in a second. Uh, right, I'm getting ahead gonna, of myself. You're, you're, you're getting into the interview, and I, I got one more story that I wanted to uh, to talk about, because Nick persuaded me that this does have some significant cybersecurity and uh, regulation of technology uh, uh, implications, and that is the story about Boeing's um, two crashes with the 737 Max, uh, uh, and there's there's been some very good reporting about uh, out of Seattle uh, uh, about just exactly what went wrong, and it it does seem to be that there was an, a failure of human factors and a failure to think about the ways in which the software that was being uh, written could lead to a human factor failure. Nick? It's even worse than that. So it is a deeply sourced article that really alleges that Boeing killed 300 people. So what happened when they built the 737 MAX is they wanted bigger engines that required shifting where the engines were, which shifted the flight dynamics. So in order to make the new 737 fly like the old one, they effectively added a software patch that would adjust the rear elevator. This was approved by the FAA-ish, but there was a lot of regulatory capture. The specs weren't updated as flight testing indicated it needed to be more aggressive, that although by Boeing's own admission, this could create a hazardous condition and therefore should have used redundant sensors, and though the computer has access to both uh, sensors, it would only act on one sensor and it would also repeatedly act. So you you trigger the system. So, it, so your, your uh, nose starts to go down, and you say, "No, I don't want it to go down." You pull on the yoke, uh, and that that puts the nose back up and breaks the software patch briefly in the application. But it leaves the nose pointed down, and then the software points it down some more. Is that that's and, how I read it? It's actually slightly more subtle. It's that you adjust the trim saying, I want the rear elevator back to normal on the yoke. And then the software reactivates again and puts it back down. And each time it will put it down its whole distance. So if you don't completely undo it, it will actually keep going down, down, down until the point where it just really wants to shove the plane directly into the ground. So it seems to me that people, uh, pilots who reacted to this by saying that the, the software is screwy and turning off that particular feature, just flicking a switch that turned it off, were fine. It's the people who had gotten in the habit of saying, if I just yank on the yoke hard enough, uh, the software will recognize it's doing something wrong and go back and do what I want. And, and for those people, it didn't work. Especially because on the 737NG, the previous one, that is the behavior that if you just give input, override the computer, the computer goes okey doke 
Well, with this, the computer would not only re re go, it would actually make things worse each time because it would re trigger and accumulate even more deflection. Yeah. So it's a, it's it, it is a disastrous failure to anticipate what strikes me as pretty reasonable uh, pilot uh, behavior, which is to keep doing things that worked for them before. At a minimum, it shows uh, that regulating the impact of cybersecurity or otherwise of software is going to turn out to be a long-term undertaking. And also in this case, it neglects the true root cause. The true root cause is they wanted to make the 737 MAX a significantly different airframe, but behave just like the old one to the point where there is no pilot retraining. And this is proven to be disastrous when combined with lax regulatory oversight, because one of the things that the Seattle Times article reveals is that a lot of the safety evaluation by the FAA was outsourced to Boeing. Yeah, I, I I think there's going to be a lot of rethinking of the regulatory framework for sure. And frankly, if you're asking yourself, how would you regulate cybersecurity, you're going to have to deal with all of these issues as well, because there'll be human factors just like this that result in um, cybersecurity uh, if, uh, flaws being introduced by human behavior that is um, predictable in retrospect, but not in advance. Uh, so I... Uh, uh, a a lesson for everybody uh, uh, in humility, I would think. Um, let me turn for now because we're running low on time uh, to our interview. Um, Elsa Kanya of CNAS and uh, Sam Bendit of CNA. Uh, uh, what we've, I've asked them to come here and talk about is how Russia and China and Russia and China together are using technology to improve their militaries and what that might mean for the U.S. military. And Elsie, you've already started down that road, so I'm going to let Sam tell me what the Russians are doing uh, and what it might mean for uh, uh, U.S. security. Well, uh, Russia identified several priorities. Uh, Actually, President Putin has identified several priorities for the military development, and they include robotics, they include unmanned systems, they include AI, electronic warfare. So um, the emphasis now going forward is on high-tech, um, high-tech development, high-tech weapons, weapons that can uh, make their mission better and save soldiers' lives, not unlike uh, the emphasis that Western militaries place on their uh, military development as well. And so um, certain type of development, certain type of high-tech development is going to play a very important role in uh, Russian acquisition and development and testing of new weapons. So that sounds to me as though they've bought into a model that the U.S. has pioneered, which is uh, we don't need anywhere near as many people if we have – uh, special forces or Spetsnaz uh, uh, to carry out the attacks, and we really super empower those many fewer uh, military operators. For the Russian military, their experience in Syria was an absolute watershed. Uh, they've tested over 300 different weapons in Syria. They tested new 
concept of operations, new tactics, techniques, and procedures. And so those CONOPs and TDPs are now shaping the way Russian military sees the future of warfare. In fact, the Russian military leadership has said on multiple occasions that Syria is the contours of future war. Uh, both for the Russian military use of new technologies and old technologies, as well as for the way Western coalition used their weapons. So let me ask about that. I, I, uh, first, I'm sure that we there's technology and uh, uh, the like that we ought to get into. But I also have a sense that uh, if not the Russians, then uh, 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 the Syrian forces <clears throat> carried out shockingly indiscriminate artillery and barrel bomb and chlorine attacks. Uh, uh, that doesn't sound very high-tech or necessarily very um, uh, uh, much uh, uh, an imitation of U.S. approaches to this. Uh, it, it, does the high-tech uh, approach to war sit alongside this more bloodthirsty and indiscriminate approach? I, I wouldn't call it that way. Uh, certainly, uh, Russians use their you know what we would call dumb weapons, uh, non-high-tech weapons. Uh, certainly, those weapons caused certain amount of damage. Uh, that also led the Russian military to an understanding that in order for them to be very successful, they need to be more precise. So now there's an emphasis on developing PGMs or the precision-guided missiles. I'll give you one example in which uh, Russians used a totally new way of warfare, much like the Americans, and that's the use of unmanned aerial vehicles. That for the first time, you have a large-scale use of UAVs for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, for guiding um, the precision strikes by the artillery, by the Air Force, by the manned components. And that led to a qualitative improvement in the way Russians are using what they're now calling the reconnaissance strike and reconnaissance fire contour. Plus, those UAVs uh, allowed Russian military to see things and react to things in real time. So what you're saying is when they leveled Grozny two or three times, whatever they did, and just killed everybody who was uh, and not uh, uh, in a bunker. It wasn't that they wanted necessarily to do that. It's just that they didn't know where their uh, uh, targets were, so they just Correct. Figured, well, well, we'll blow up everything. Correct. If you told the Russian military of 1998 and even the Russian military of 2008 that was in Georgia, what kind of weapons and tactics they're going to be using in 2018, uh, they simply would not believe you. So yes, Russian military can strike things. If it can see them, if it can't see them, it's simply going to kind of try to level things off. Um, and that's where the UAVs actually come in. That's where satellite comms is coming in. That's where all these new technologies that they haven't tested before in a mass scale have to come in. And again, Syria was a massive watershed. So but from, the, from their point of view, um, Syria demonstrates that basically imitating the American way of war is a winner. For now, yes. And in that, in that specific conflict where they have to fight uh, an inferior adversary, much like the United States had to fight inferior adversaries in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was not a peer-to-peer -peer conflict. But Russians are also preparing for a peer-to-peer -peer war. And the conversation definitely shifts there. Yeah. I, and I think and, and also the Chinese don't fight a lot of these insurgency type uh, wars, do they? They haven't had the same experience that the U.S. and the Russians have had in uh, third world countries, have they? Uh, not quite, or at least not yet, which is why the Chinese military is very closely watching what the Russian military uh, is doing and has undertaken in Syria and in the Ukraine. And I'd characterize some of their approach as learning without fighting. They're trying to draw lessons from other militaries' wars, whether that's uh, the United States 
or Russia. They uh, are they embedding uh, uh, Chinese officers in the Russian military to actually observe this up close. I have not seen direct evidence of that to date, though there do appear to be at least a couple of Chinese defense academics who have undertaken a close study of Russian operations and have even published books with some of their lessons learned, and I believe that there may have been some Chinese presence on the ground in Syria, whether uh, for business interests or there have also been some Chinese defense contractors, uh, companies that have started to operate more globally in defense of China's economic interests under One Belt, One Road. But I think uh, a more interesting uh, mechanism it appears to be, and that's where some of my research in SAMS is intersected, is looking at a deepening defense cooperation between China and Russia, where there's engagement and uh, Russia's uh, been sharing with uh, the Chinese military some of their lessons learned. And their Vol- voluntarily or, or involuntarily? Uh, voluntarily. Seemingly voluntarily. voluntarily. I think there's yeah. a recognition of some synergies there. And at the Vostok exercises last fall, that seemed to be one of the major appeals for the PLA, that given that they're lacking their own military experience, right. they can work with and learn from Russia. And I'd also add that in addition to some of this uh, active observation, there's also been increased Chinese engagement in peacekeeping and p- counter-piracy operations, which do provide some uh, some experience. And in some cases, Chinese peacekeepers have not performed very well, or at least in one case, uh, fled and left civilians uh, defenseless in front of a, a rebel group. Uh, there's a report from a human rights organization documenting some pretty pretty poor performance. Uh, well, you know, so. the, the Dutch didn't exactly distinguish themselves at uh, Srebrenica, if I remember right. It was a similar kind of, uh, oh, my God, these guys have guns. Let's leave uh, experience. So I think the Chinese military leaders uh, do see and are seeking out opportunities to uh, gain some greater semblance of combat experience, given that they're lacking it. And this has also corresponded with efforts to increase the realism and sophistication of their military training, including uh, even starting to explore the use of virtual or or augmented reality for military training, more uh, confrontation-style exercises between red and blue forces. Uh, uh, They're red, we're blue in in either system, so that actually uh, is less confusing in that regard. And there have even been active exploration of the use of AI in wargaming by the Chinese military. So they've had an AI system called Profit 1.0 that is a Competed against human teams in war games and apparently beat uh, beat them seven to one. So there's definitely, I think, uh, interesting interesting ways in which uh, some of these dynamics of learning and this emphasis on emerging technologies are starting to intersect. So there, there's a there's a key yeah. phrase here, yeah. and that's the uh, for the Russians, it's lessons learned in Syria. Everything they're doing now, all the military training, all the concept of operations, technical development is based on lessons learned in Syria. So for China, that's an incredible mission multiplier to learn from the force that just fought this modern conflict and objectively speaking- Prevailed. Prevailed and came out a winner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Notwithstanding President Obama and his entire team saying, ha ha, we got those guys to enter that quagmire, they'll never get out. Uh, In fact, they've killed their way to the other side. Exactly. Uh, So I have to say though, you know what the Russians have. The Russians have now a, um, a a victory or a successful campaign that they can talk about. They can't really talk about Ukraine, uh, right? They're probably. not officially in Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. they never were. And, and and Georgia. So so now they've got a win they can they can actually put on the board, a, and that gives them you know a, some 
modest prestige and uh, uh, actually it's not a modest prestige okay. it's, it's a significant prestige for the military what else did they bring to the table I mean the, the, the Chinese have money they have technology they have well the, the Russians have cyber espionage but if you believe that economics drives uh, military success in the long run um, then Russia is doomed to be a sort of Italian sized <laughs> Um, a military force. How is it that they can build a relationship with China that doesn't become a second class, make them a second class citizen? Well, there are certain advantages that China has. Um, sorry, Russia has that China doesn't have, and this is what Els and I have been exploring in previous papers and in, in the upcoming paper. And for example, Russians have a lead on engine development. They have a lead on electronic warfare development, uh, and a couple of other uh, military aspects that China still lacks. So the stuff that is really deeply military, right, which and they, very high tech, yes, uh, and maybe material science uh, focused. Uh, those kinds of things are things that they've uh, from the Soviet times they've been good at and they have always believed that making weapons was a major part of what they did and they sold weapons they still have a, a, a weapons export business so um, uh, whereas the Chinese are seem to be buying into this idea we should just take all our really high-tech civilian capabilities and adapt them the way the Americans have for their uh, technology and that doesn't always work unless you've got 50 years of weapons development. And Russians also have new approaches now. Russian military has a new approach to developing weapons. And again, Els and I have been discussing it and we'll cover it in, in the future papers. And that's um, the flexibility of the Russian government and the military in uh, trying to test and uh, field new systems, uh, different types of government oversight. Uh, Russians have, for example, launched their own DARPA back in 2013 that has the same mission as the so American DARPA. Did, did I hear you put the words Russian government and flexibility in the same sentence? Strange, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they're trying. And I think Syria uh, showed that Russian government, in fact, can be flexible. Uh, after all, um, they had a small footprint in the country. When uh, they lost certain regions, they withdrew, but then they went back in. They were able to use civilian assets like the Turkish ships mm -hmm. to ship their equipment there. And that's, again, lacking any significant sea lift and logistical capability, which was one of the reasons that United States thought Russia would fail. Um, and so uh, they're trying different approaches. They're trying different agencies. They're trying different public-private cooperative ventures. And some of that is bearing fruit. Some of that is kind of in a TBD uh, area. But again, some of that is beginning to bear fruit. And so that's, that is what you learn when you actually do stuff as opposed to think about stuff. Elsa, the Chinese are mostly thinking about stuff, not doing it. Uh, uh, do they have the same flexibility? Have they built similar capabilities to what the Russians are starting to demonstrate? Yes, I'd say in some of the classical literature on military innovation, it's framed as a process involving both concept development and experimentation. So I think in some respects, the Chinese military is still working and developing concepts for intelligentized warfare or algorithmic, algorithmic warfare in the American parlance, in a sense, or a style of warfare in which AI technologies become more integrated into the overall system of systems. And I'd note that, interestingly, the Academy of Military Sciences, which has been responsible for the development of strategy and doctrine for the Chinese military, has started to 
integrate uh, new uh, technological elements, including new research centers focused on unmanned systems and artificial intelligence. So it's a potentially a unique model of trying to combine strategists and technologists within a single organization, at least nominally, and potentially um, put the uh, put the innovation, military innovation, through thinking more about the technological developments of thinking on future warfare. And so even it doesn't, it doesn't it sound a little to you like military industrial complex. It's it, it it's something that the U.S. has by and large to the relief of uh, public policymakers, but some uh, are unhappy about the way in which industry has worked with uh, uh, the military. Uh, isn't, isn't China just reinventing the military-industrial complex here? In many respects, a lot of what China's doing under the aegis of the strategy known as military civil fusion or civil military integration, which uh, Xi Jinping has personally highlighted as a priority, it does does uh, reflect an adaptation of approaches that they've seen be successful in the United States, including, not unlike Russia, a Chinese-style DARPA, the Central Military Commission Science and Technology Commission, even a rapid response team based in Shenzhen that's uh, helping the PLA to leverage commercial technologies for defense, which is analogous to the Defense Innovation Unit in some respects, or the perhaps the Department of Defense's Strategic Capabilities Office. There are attempts to build deeper partnerships between academia and military research. Uh, Tsinghua, China's MIT, as it's often called, uh, has evidently deepened its uh, research engagement with uh, the development of artificial intelligence for military purposes. And this uh, does pose some very tricky questions when there are a number of American universities and companies that are exploring partnerships with uh, Chinese entities that are starting under under the rubric of this new agenda for military civil fusion to be more closely linked to Chinese defense developments. So it's not entirely unique to China as an approach, but there are ways in which uh, China's model for mobilizing uh, academia and technology companies in support of national defense does go beyond how we think about it in the U.S. And so let me let me let me refocus briefly uh, on what this means for U.S. companies. There, there was a, uh, a Defense Department official who recently said uh, uh, that Google was objectively helping the. Uh, uh, the Chinese military more than the U.S., more or less. Uh, and it, what he had in mind was Google funding AI research in China by Chinese scholars. And I assume what he was worried about was that uh, all of that research, directly or indirectly, would slide over into the civil military fusion uh, um, and benefit, uh, uh, provide new insights to the Chinese military. What are U.S. companies doing to try to deal with that problem? So I guess I'll start by saying that these are tricky and often murky situations. And based on the evidence I've seen so far, I think there are reasons for concern that certain of Google's activities and engagements in China could indirectly... I'm not sure if I'd use the word benefit, but could indirectly have some connectivity to defense-relevant developments, including when some of its partners, like Fudan University in Shanghai, are among those universities that are pursuing uh, military-relevant research in, in emerging so, so technologies they, they may not be funding so. the guy who does the military work, but it, 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 they're funding a guy down the hall from the guy who's doing the military work. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the parameters of these partnerships evolve going forward, because personally, I do believe that 
We live in a world of globalized innovation, and American companies and universities have benefited more from this than almost anyone else in the world. And of course, there are risks and some negative externalities that come into play uh, when you do choose to sustain that openness and pursue global cooperation in science and technology. I think on balance, the benefits uh, are greater than greater than the harm in some cases, but there also have been incidents where um, members of the Chinese military have been collaborating with uh, Western academics on research with uh, clear relevance to defense. So a colleague of mine, Alex Trotsky from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, produced a great report called Picking Flowers, Making Honey that documents an extensive detail some of these collaborations. And I think in instances like that, when it's a member of the Chinese military or a Chinese military university that's working with, uh, with American universities or companies, the PLA's National University of Defense Technology is a prime example there of a key player in the development of military artificial intelligence that also is quite openly engaging and participating in international academia in some respects. Uh, I think that, I think the Risks and potential consequences there are clear. I think when it comes to the question of Google's involvement in China, I think it's a, I think it's a decision that the company should make based on its own commercial interests at the end of the day, and that's something that the U.S. government should be deciding so or it's to up curtail to the US necessarily. To make sure that their commercial interests align with the U.S. if they don't want them to do things that are counter to the U.S. interests. I think the interesting. The dynamic is that Google does, in certain respects, seem to see itself as an international company, and that it clearly has recognized benefits to seeking out access to talent and a ample market in China. I think I hope that there'll be some awareness of the uh, complications that come with operating in China, and that Google has been subject to intense, and I would argue justified criticism for some of the compromises it seemed to make, including uh, allegedly developing a search engine that would be censored, known as Dragonfly. Well, they haven't, they haven't deployed that. So haven't that, haven't that, deployed, that, and hopefully yeah, they I, won't, I, but I think I, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, criticize them for thinking about it. Uh, maybe they shouldn't, but uh, uh, we know about that because the people who worked on it started uh, complaining. Uh, it, what's interesting is they also complain about doing work that might benefit the U.S. Pentagon. I'm willing to bet that the Chinese scholars who are working with Google on uh, uh, AI that might have implications for uh, uh, the Chinese military aren't ever going to complain that they don't want to be working on projects that would help the Chinese military. So I think that the fact that we can have these open and inclusive conversations about the ethics of AI in the U.S. is is vital and is a strength and comparative advantage in perspective. It's hard to imagine those same conversations happening in China today at a time when Xi Jinping has said on a number of occasions the party leads everything, and that includes the tech sector, and there has been some attention to AI ethics from Chinese companies and the Chinese government, but... Uh, their approach to considerations of AI ethics and safety often involves concern for social stability and any potential uh, risks of, uh, of unrest and clearly a strong interest in leveraging these technologies for coercive purposes, including in censorship and surveillance. So it's very different environments and conversations all in all. And I think we're also seeing a creeping incursion by the party state into the tech sector that could uh, could prove damaging to Chinese innovation in the long term. Well, let me ask Sam. I, I, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that as we start talking about um, commercially 
important technologies like AI uh, and that will be driven largely by commercial development and then spun out into the uh, 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 military sphere, that we are talking about a two-horse race uh, and that uh, uh, the Russians just aren't likely ever to be in this race. They don't have the market to, to do that, uh, um, especially if we're talking about peer-to-peer -peer conflict as opposed to beating up uh, people in the third world. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, and do the Russians see it differently? Well, yes, they don't have the market. Their AI market, for example, is just starting to develop. Uh, Plenty of officials from Kremlin all the way down recognize that the lack of AI infrastructure, so the lack of venture capital investment, protection of intellectual property, existence of IPOs, uh, um, angel investment, all of that has been absent um, for a number of years. Which well, they, they had it for a while and then they expropriated and killed off <clears throat> a few of their, uh, uh, their, their VC uh, enterprise founders. Uh, uh, so it's not surprising that they, they aren't doing so well. Right. And so now uh, they're trying to reverse that trend. And so they're launching a number of government initiatives, large-scale government initiatives aimed at fostering technological innovation. I don't uh, know. But the, a lot of public... Government? I mean, the, the government knows right. nothing. So at some point, of course... Um, you know, at some level, I should say, there's a level of skepticism. On the other hand, that type of support was sorely lacking. And so a lot of high-tech developers, a lot of AI developers, a lot of students at the universities. Just left. Well, first of all, some have left. A lot more has stayed. And so if we were to be bullish on anything high-tech in Russia, and that's that would be the existence of a very well-educated, very patriotic STEM uh, workforce made mm -hmm. up of uh, students at universities and and academies now. So they're waiting for the government to step in and invest heavily in trying to foster this public-private cooperation to develop this infrastructure. And a lot of uh, a lot of AI developments are actually taking place in the military. They're taking place in the Russian DARPA. They're going to take place at this uh, technopolis uh, called ERA that they're building. It's going to take place at the military academies all across uh, the country with support of the government, of course. And government is now pushing a lot of their military industrial enterprises to develop dual-use technologies. So you have mm. all these massive Titanic-sized uh, uh, enterprises like Rostec and Kalashnikov and many others uh, being asked by the government to stay more competitive and develop dual-use civilian products. It feels like a box canyon for them, though. Uh, they, they, they have recognized that following the U.S. lead on how to build a, an effective military produces results. Witness Syria. Um, and then when they say, and how do we do that to fight the Americans or even the North Koreans, they begin to realize that they don't have the, uh, the economy that the U.S. and increasingly China have to fully uh, imitate what the U.S. has done. Um, and so they, they bought into an approach that they can put a lot of government money into that. Government money is not the secret to what the U.S. has achieved. But economy is not necessarily a determinant of whether mm -hmm. a country can compete. So Soviet Union's GDP throughout the Cold War was about 40% of the American. That didn't stop them for a couple of decades to challenge the United States globally, technologically, politically, socially. And now they have invested in certain capabilities where they may have an asymmetric advantage, like electronic warfare. They recognize the threat posed by American high-tech weapons. In fact, General Gerasimov recognizes that every year at his famous military academy speech. But Russians are developing capabilities that they think would be able to counter that. 
and they're building on that. And so uh, in developing their high-tech infrastructure, to kind of go back to the original question, uh, they are seeking to develop a new workforce that would be able to stay in country, not emigrate to California or Israel, and work at certain enterprises and in um, public, private cooperative uh, fields that would enable them uh, to actually put their uh, mind to good use. So we're in a world where the people we most worry about a competition with, a conflict with, are now clearly and unmistakably imitating our approach to the, the military strategy and weapons development and the like. Uh, and you'd think, oh, well, that's nice. You know, we, we have an idea how that works and uh, um, we're still ahead. So they'll be imitating us trying to catch up. But I worry that it produces real risk of surprise, that, uh, that somebody is going to be following the basic strategy but looking, as the Russians clearly are and the Chinese uh, seem to be as well, for asymmetric advantage that we aren't anticipating. Right. So, and in the end, AI isn't the same as building an aircraft carrier. You mm -hmm. don't need tens of thousands of people and billions of dollars and lots of industries. AI is a couple of dozen high-tech uh, educated. Yeah, you know, and then the surprise is as likely to come to the people who designed it and, as anybody else. <laughs> and, and and their breakthrough uh, doesn't need as much investment as building an aircraft carrier. So, so let me – so I'll, I'll ask both of you because uh, we're coming to the end. Elsa first. If you had to guess at the one or two places where we run the biggest risk of surprise, I mean the surprise that kills a lot of people – um, in the technology weapons field, where do you think it's likely to come uh, looking at China? That's a tricky question, and I w won't make any predictions about the future, especially the future of warfare and uh, strategic competition, but I do think that it's clear China... Well, Yogi Berra did say, you know, indeed. predictions are hard, especially about the future. Indeed, indeed. And so I would say, I think what concerns me is the fact that the that China is heavily investing in technologies in which the U.S. and China and Russia are starting more or less from the same point. And in recent history, uh, the United States has enjoyed a, an advantage by far in military technologies that we've sometimes taken for granted and sometimes believed that we can sustain uh, indefinitely. I think it remains to be seen whether that will be true for technologies like military robotics, artificial intelligence, even quantum technology. When we're seeing China and Russia also actively develop and experiment with these emerging capabilities in ways that could uh, and likely will be designed to target what they see as weaknesses in our ways of warfare, getting back to the question of studying and learning from our past performance and otherwise. So when I was a when I was walking through the Chinese Military Museum in Beijing at one point, I happened to come across a small depiction of a swarm combat system going up against an aircraft carrier, apropos of our conversation of, of the course. Navy earlier, and it did not uh, specify whose aircraft carrier that might be, but I think we can but draw I, some conclusions there. There's only one so country think, that has them practically yeah, at this point. Yes, so <laughs> I think in terms of technologies like swarming, I think in terms of uh, future applications such as the uh, use of artificial intelligence to support command decision-making, 
which could increase the speed of operations. I think if we look at the status of hypersonics uh, development today, that is a domain where it does seem that China and Russia may be ahead of the U.S. Is hypersonics in- meaning faster than sound uh, 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 air travel or uh, uh, sonic um, attacks on uh, the uh, Cuban embassy? A very, very fast weapon systems, not sonic attacks, (laughs) though I guess that's another uh, concern for surprise and increased. So I think we could be seeing, or at least Chinese strategists write consistently that they're expecting to see an increase in the tempo of operations. And I think when we see the integration of different different technologies, uh, the advent of systems like hypersonic glide vehicles that could be increasingly autonomous, with uh, AI integrated into battle networks across the board, which will also enable improvements in logistics, intelligence, uh, plus uh, even advances in new capabilities such as directed energy weapons or even the weaponization of biotechnology, I think will be a very concerning development to watch going forward, considering Mm -hmm. recent Chinese research in CRISPR and otherwise. So I suppose I can't pick just two, but I would say I think... The ways in which some of these technologies could converge and some of the potential synergies among them could produce some surprise going forward. And I think also the dynamic between China and Russia as they share data, share lessons learned, and and start to increase their collaboration and projects involving big data, robotics, potentially hypersonics and other advanced weapon systems. I think although there clearly is... Some mistrust as well as some frictions between China and Russia. There are, there's also, I think, a recognition of uh, ways in which they can leverage intersections between their comparative advantages and capabilities and for the time being seeing a common common challenge, perhaps a common enemy in, in some respects in the United States. Yeah, sure. No, no, no doubt about that. Uh, Sam, uh, uh, thinking about places where the Russians could produce genuine surprise uh, uh, in terms of military technology developments. Uh, where do you think the biggest risks are? I agree with Els. It's a little tricky to uh, to try and predict that. But she described certain patterns uh, which are also true for Russia as they are for China. I think what the Russians are trying to do now is to truly improve their C4ISR capability. And that's command, control, communication, computers, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. I, I described the difference between the Russian militaries of 98, 2008, and 2018. And so C4ISR, or C2 specifically, command and control, is a big, big difference between you, you all know, these stages. This is this is back in, 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 in as early as the turn of the last, this, this most recent century. Uh, um, you started to see um, executives in developing countries adopt computer technologies as fast or faster than uh, the the developed countries because the executives were every bit the match for executives elsewhere in the West, but they didn't think their workforce could keep up. And so being able to pull the information in quickly on a network and get decisions out of people who were very sophisticated – was a transformative uh, technology. Right. And you see the same 
thinking, I suspect, going on in the Russian and maybe the Chinese military. We don't need individual soldiers who can make these decisions so much as we need to get the information back to somebody who's just as good as the Americans at making those calls. Plus, the relationship between the military and the executive is different for China and Russia as it is for the United States. In some ways, some decisions are made faster. Uh, the process could be smoother um, and and the military can actually talk directly to the executive about its needs. But I think another aspect where um, Russian military can surprise the United States is in plugging existing and future AI or machine learning capabilities in areas where they're exhibiting strength like electronic warfare or radar technologies and, and other tech that they are developing to counter American high-tech advantage. And I'd add in the Chinese military, we're seeing uh, similar trends in terms of that emphasis on C4SR, which uh, has been characterized as a transition from informatization to intelligentization. And I think right. these questions of command and control will be fascinating to observe as technologies evolve going forward. I'm sometime, sometimes asked whether I think or under what conditions the Chinese or Russian military might take humans out of the loop so to speak, or have less human involvement in decision-making on the future battlefield. And my half-serious response would be, I can say with complete confidence, there will always be at least one human in the loop in China, and that yes. is Xi Jinping. <laughs> right, I imagine right. <laughs> uh, in Russia that Putin will always be in the loop one way or another. But I do think that there could be interesting ways in which Chinese and Russian military and strategic cultures will result well, there, there, in there, there, there's different our, patterns our, our of, of comparative adoption. comparative advantage, because I guarantee Trump will not be in the loop. <laughs> well, the, the emphasis now for the Chinese and the Russians is the move from information-based warfare to knowledge-based warfare. And that's where all these new technologies come in so that the technology can learn along with the humans and adapt. And I think everybody's racing towards that status uh, and the surprise will be whoever gets it first. Intelligent confrontation or a new era, right. so to speak. And But I think at the same time, uh, to go back to the earlier news items, some of the human factors, as we saw in the recent tragedy, will also uh, remain challenging for the Russian, Chinese, and American militaries going forward. So this may be a machine age of warfare, but that may render some of the underlying human determinants of military capability uh, more critical than ever. Do you think that there's some instability uh, in this race to informatize uh, uh, warfare, that the first country to get there uh, may say, we're here, I don't know how long this advantage will last, but it is overwhelming. We ought to use it right now. I think one of the greatest risks that I would see is the fact that the inherent uncertainty about military capabilities in an age in which AI That's is becoming thing, more critical to military power could result in miscalculation. So, yeah. for instance, the Chinese military they may does think not, that, they that, may that, think, that it's overwhelming yes. and it might not be. Yes, no, that's, that's the, the concern, that's, that especially in scenarios involving Taiwan, for instance. If the PLA decides, based on perhaps wargaming or simulations they've undertaken, that they are ready and that they could take on the U.S. military, then perhaps they could make a decision or miscalculation that could be unwise at best, and they may fail to take into account some of their own software, so to speak, or human vulnerabilities, given their lack of experience in actual combat scenarios. And I think the risks of misperception or miscalculation, or the fact that the difficulty of measuring who is leading or winning or most succeeding in leveraging these technologies could drive, uh, could drive instability in that it creates incentives to go faster and perhaps at worst neglect safety and or, assurance or along the way. Or if you think you have a, an advantage, you're losing. 
there's a temptation to strike now. So, Indeed. All right. All right. Okay. Um, Elsa Kanya, Sam Bendit, uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, that uh, tour of uh, Russian and Chinese uh, weapons and technology development. Uh, uh, thanks also to David Chris, Nate Jones, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 255 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, send us uh, suggestions for interview guests, and we'll send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which we will be giving to uh, both Elsa and Sam. Uh, I send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter if I ever get back to Twitter uh, at Stuart Baker uh, for postings on stories I think we might cover. Please do rate our shows um, on iTunes and Google Play and I did get a complaint from somebody who says, I can't figure out how to um, uh, give a review to you on Spotify. And frankly, I got no idea myself because I don't subscribe to Spotify. Uh, uh, so anybody who has a suggestion for how to um, uh, goose our ratings in Spotify, please send it in to, at, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Toquam, who said, uh, uh, these folks are deeply experienced, have a number of different mutually respectful point viewpoints, and one learns with a, a lot with humor and without tub thumping. Uh, so thanks to him and then uh, uh, someone who describes themselves as Jenna Jameson, but I probably is not, uh, uh, asks me to, to read his review or her review. Uh, I am, you know, I won't. Uh, upcoming guests, uh, Amy Ziegart uh, from Stanford Hoover, Hoover Institution, Adam Segal from the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, uh, among others. Uh, and uh, thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, who is today our audio engineer, uh, as well as our uh, uh, intern running the program. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.